five, four, three, two, 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 two. Well, you know how it sounds so depressed when we get ready to record? Like, you're like, ah, I guess we'll do the recording now. I don't even know what time it is. It's, I'm it's, tired. It's not. It's early. It's it is only early. like, it's morning time. We're doing Code Blocks. It's episode 204. Boom! In your face. 204. <laughs> Got it. 204. Okay, so subscribe. You're listening to Coding Blocks. Did I say that part already? I'm trying to change nope. it up. Keep it fresh. Keep yep, it new. Keep fresh. it new. Yeah. Uh, subscribe to us if you haven't already. iTunes, Spotify, all those major platforms. Uh, visit us at codingblocks.net. You can find the show notes, examples, discussion, blah, blah, blah. And this is episode 204 Um 40. You can send your feedback, questions, and comments to... Uh, our comments at codingblocks.net email, and you can follow us on Twitter at codingblocks. All right, and uh, we also got a website www.codingblocks.net, and uh, you can find all the other social sausage links at the top of the page. <laughs> sausage links. I think oh, you sorry. forgot the. Don't you have to do like something with like a slash slash? Uh, I forget how it goes no. at the front of the. No, you don't to get to the website. Uh, not as of like 30 years ago. It's just keyword, uh, keyword coding blocks. Yep. <laughs> That'll work too, I think. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I just had some, mo- some mustard on my monitor there. All right, but uh, yeah, anyway, I'm Joe Zach. <laughs> mustard on the monitor? What? That doesn't even make sense. It's I miss awesome. it. Oh, because, no, okay, sense. now it does yep. make sense. Dang it, I was wrong. Yep. <laughs> I got to rethink, rethink all my life choices over here. Nailed it. Nailed the ending. Y- you did. Yeah. It was a perfect setup, and you hooked me, and I I missed it. Boom. And who are you, sir? Which one? You. <laughs> oh, me? I'm Michael Outlaw. But he didn't say who he was. I don't know he who did. he is. He did. He said, did I'm he? Joe Zach, and I have mustard on my monitor. That's right. He did. Dang it. He did. I'm so uh, bad tonight. This Today. This morning. Yeah. I'm Alan Underwood. Yeah. And at least we're consistent. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, right. We're going to be talking about a lot about consistency, I guess. Uh, that's what yeah. that's what went wrong. Oh, I guess I forgot to change that one, though. <laughs> We're continuing talking about uh, uh, transactions, um, getting into some isolation levels. And this was a really cool chapter, or it's a little section of the chapter uh, I liked, because um, these are some things I've seen like around and kind of queries and like uh, little co- literal constructs and like languages and inputs to functions and configurations. And it was kind of cool to see like, oh, these things have like kind of formal accepted definitions, or at least some of them have formal accepted yes. definitions. We'll get into that. Um, so uh, first, a little bit of news. Uh, you want to read some reviews there, Ella? Yep. So from Audible, we have a new review from Allison Williams. Thank you very much. And then also, I wanted to call this one out. I don't know if you guys saw this. Um, from Twitter, uh, we had, I'm just going to abbreviate it, John G's uh, message to us from Twitter was very heartfelt message. Uh, very much appreciated. Um, I don't know if he wanted like his full name mentioned. That's why, like since it was uh, sent as a DM rather than, you know, put on uh, one of the platforms or whatnot. But yeah, so I wanted to thank both of them for, uh, you know, taking the time and uh, share their stories and, and appreciate that, uh, you know, they left good news. Good things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yes, thank you. Um, so yeah, we already mentioned we're continuing on with the designing, uh, designing data intensive applications. So as is tradition, leave a comment and, uh, you know, it'll enter you in for a chance to win a copy of the book. Uh, could be physical, 
could be digital. Could be audio. Could be audio. I forgot this book was available as audio. That's right. Take your pick. We will hook you up. Maybe if if you have a chance to be hooked up. And by the way, uh, I looked it up. Uh, There is no new version planned. So I just totally made that up. So sorry. (laughs) Good. I wasn't really thinking that we'd be able to go through another version of this. It'd be rough. Yeah. (laughs) From the top. So before we get into the, um, the meat of the episode there, I thought I would do like a little bit of call, uh, you know, Hey, throwback Thursday, uh, call back to a previous episode or a series of episodes. So if you haven't already listened, um, we did a series on the 12 factor app, which if memory serves, it was, uh, a ser- a standard put out by Heroku. Uh, and they published so. if they published it, it was at the 12 factor app, Dot net, I think, or 12, was it 12 factor.net or just 12 factor app? Dang it. Now I can't remember. 12 factor.net. Okay. Thank you. One, two, like the number one, two factor. Very important. Yes. Yes. So, uh, you know, I mean, they kind of, um, I don't know how, how, how would you phrase it? They, they, they impressed upon this world, this, this great concept of the 12 factor app and, you know, it's kind of taken off. I mean, we, we, there was even, um, I think at one point we talked about somebody else that had like an additional three factors or something like that. That sounds familiar. I don't remember it off the top of my head, yep. but um, I wanted to share a link from Google with their spin on the 12 factor app and how it applies to the Google cloud and how you can uh, take advantage of um, Google cloud to, to make your 12 factor app and you go through it and they've got some little code snippets here and there and, talk about how, how you could, uh, you know, implement it in their world and even going, you know, next steps beyond the 12 factor app, what you might be able to do. So, uh, I thought it was a pretty good read, uh, pretty, uh, you know, consistent with the previous, uh, discussion. Yeah. So I got a little distracted. I was just picking the winner. So don't forget to uh, comment. We only had one comment on the, the last post. So uh, congratulations. Super good, Dave. Uh, just, I just messaged you. That's anyway. amazing. <laughs> yeah. So a uh, quick thing I want to mention is the Orlando Code Camp is coming up March 25th. It is a free conference. Uh, we've, we've spoken about this one before. We've showed up before. We've uh, had a lot of fun there past years. This is the first one back after COVID. So it's been a two-year break. And uh, we're just kind of getting ramped up. There's a registration link, so it's free if you're in the area or if you feel like, uh, you know, commuting. And you should sign up and come. You get free lunch and a T-shirt. And it's awesome. It's uh, we got 50-plus speakers this year. Uh, we got uh, – it's it's like a college campus. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. So uh, you should check it out and you should sign up and come hang out. Yeah, and we said it last time. Like, they do a stellar job down there. So if you're in the area, definitely go. It's a, It's a great day of learning and meeting people and eating for free and getting a t-shirt. Like that's amazing. Yeah. And I think, uh, I saw on another conference, I was advertising for DrupalCon uh, down for their, one of the things in their hero image. Uh, maybe, maybe it wasn't DrupalCon. It was some Drupal conference. They had a hero image and like, they were like so many attendees, so many speakers, so many sessions, average temperature, 75 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> 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 that's a good selling point for down yeah, there. That's pretty funny. Is Drupal still a thing? Really? Yeah. Even with WordPress dominating the world like it has. That's yeah. interesting. All right. Now cool. Look up the actual one. It's called Florida Drupal. Camp. That's, 
I'm 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 shocked. I, it was hot years ago. I'm surprised. Anyways, all right. Well, let's kick off this thing. We're picking back up in the uh, transaction uh, chapter. I think it was chapter seven, right? Yep. And we are talking about right now weak isolation levels. So, um, th- this chapter is so good. Uh, if two transactions don't touch the same data, they can be run in parallel. Right. And that makes sense, right? Like if you're updating record number one and somebody else is updating record number two, then they're not crossing paths there. So you're good. Um, race conditions occur when two different processes are trying to modify or access the same data at the same time. So if you have, you know, all three of us trying to update record number one, that's where you start running into these problems. Again, put yourself back into the mindset of like, I'm going to, I'm going to implement this database on my own. Here's just like, go back to the shell scripts that he had, uh, that the author had where, you know, you would write to a file or update a portion of the file, you know, as the, as your database. Right. And now when you talk about these concurrency issues or the race conditions where you're trying to read or modify the same thing at the same time, you could kind of understand like, okay, we're, we're right now when we talk about this, we're setting the, that we're setting the. Uh, the scene we're setting the scene for like what's to come, right? Like why, why, why did we need to get to where we eventually got that? We're, we'll discuss eventually, but you know, yeah. Nope. So I don't know if that the, helped. It does. <laughs> it was easy for you to say too. Apparently. Yeah. It was so gosh. <laughs> why you got called me out like that? Sorry about that. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure I will have my stumbles here. Um, so concurrency bugs are very hard to find and to test for. Uh, if you've ever done it in like an IDE, oh man, it can be really frustrating. Um, yeah, just debugging is terrible. Oh man, it's it's truly awful. And they say yeah. usually when you have these problems, it comes down to just unlucky timing. You're about yeah. to say something. Well, I was going to say like the debugging of concurrency problems, usually because you're going through it so slow, you can't reproduce it's it's so difficult to reproduce because like wait you're going through it too slow so it's you're naturally like already bottlenecking things to where it's no longer happening concurrently it's happening and you're like one step uh uh time it's going to yep. go now right you know you know calling or, or talking about that in particular I, I haven't done a ton of concurrency debugging in intellij but visual studio had some really good tools for working with that. So if you're working in C sharp or whatever, and you're doing like parallel methods or concurrent type things, um, if, if you're not aware of it, look up the concurrent debugging in visual studio code. Cause they are not code in visual studio. They did a really nice job of it there. It was actually your tip of the week, uh, a long time back, um, where you had talked about, <laughs> you, you, you had talked about like how to debug in visual studio, uh, you know, threaded uh, apps and, and concurrency issues. I can't, I, man, I, your memory astound, it just astonishes me nonstop. <laughs> I'm going to find the episode. That's going to be more astounding. Yeah, yeah. He's going to yeah. be like, it was episode 77. And <laughs> Back in 2011. Right. Hey, uh, you know, um, one thing I've seen in um, some tools for testing and some like some frameworks, like um, I forget which one it was. So if it, I think it was, may have been Beam, Google's Beam project. Uh, some of the streaming um toolkits they have really good test support uh for testing like multi uh what you call it um 
multi-threaded multi-threaded concurrent applications and the way they do it is by having a uh, basically a logical clock that you can stub in instead of using like whatever clock they normally use and so you can actually kind of step forward uh, in time and cause things to happen explicitly which lets you write like you know effectively unit tests around things like that that are normally super hard to to make happen oh that's very cool i don't think i'd seen that yeah, I think you really have to design your system like knowing that you want to do that from the get go in order to be able to, to kind of do that. But th- those kind of things we you know we talk about stepping out mis- uh, system calls and things like that in your your tests and not, not having your system rely on anything, including the clock. Yeah, which is very hard when you're doing multi-threaded type stuff. Yeah, plus um, I just don't want to. That's not how I want to spend my time. <laughs> right. Um. So concurrency bugs can also be very difficult to understand because multiple parts of an application can be interacting with your database at the same time in ways that you didn't expect. Right. And that happens quite a bit. Um, Single interaction or single user interactions with a database are hard enough. Um, When you have tons of different things interacting with your database, it makes it a lot more difficult. Right. So, you know, you know that you're writing something, but now you have an inventory system talking to your database and you have, you have other like accounting and, and customer service and whatever else, right? Like all these things competing for the same things. And it, it can really, it, you think you know your system until you see this other thing happen. And then you're like, how? <laughs> right? You know, I've heard stories of, um, what was, what's the simple DB or God, geez, I can't remember the SQLite. light. Um, I've heard stories of like that, like how in depth and how uh, thorough their tests are. I've never looked at Postgres. Or I've never heard anything about it. But I assume they have to be really tough. Like imagine like implementing any new feature, all the things you have to kind of think about it, and all the various combinations and features and stuff that they've kind of like added on over the years, like to make sure you support everything that you could possibly configure it for. It's just crazy. Could you imagine being the person that has to review those pull requests? Like no. Did you think about these 9,000 other things? Just, you know, I know you just want to do that one thing right there, but, you know, this impacts every other part of the system. That's yeah. why you should have uh, pull request gates, you know, unit tests, linting, whatever, yada, 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 so that Agreed. you don't have to like scrutinize it visually, you know, with your own yeah. eyeballs. Let the machines totally. do the work for you. That's tough. Yeah. Anyway, uh, databases try to make it look like interactions happen one at a time for that very reason. Uh, basically, it's kind of um, if they can simplify the problem so that processes can kind of be isolated and work in an isolated way, then they simplify the things that the person working on the system has to, to think about. So basically, it's kind of like taking care of the problem or helping with the problem at a very high level. So by the time you get down to the nitty-gritty details of whatever you're working on, that stuff is kind of you know abstracted away from you, which is really nice. Uh, they mentioned serial, uh, serializable isolation uh, as a database guarantee that makes transactions look as if they happen uh, serially, meaning basically one or after another. So if we send two at the same time, if we arrange them such that one goes first and the other happens afterwards, then suddenly we don't have to worry about two things happening at once, right? Because we've artificially forced them to happen one at a time, which is, uh, you know... Great in theory, but all of this portion, like I can't, I so can't wait to get to the head because this, this portion, like I said a moment ago, like it's literally like just laying the groundwork, like setting the scene. The next part, the neck, the, the sections that's coming up for me, I don't know about for you guys. It was like mind blowing. Oh, like I had never even considered the craziness that they were discussing. Like, Oh, here's how it works. And you're like, 
well, yeah, now that you tell me, I can't unsee it. Like, that's amazing. Like somebody, so, yeah, yeah, it's awesome. So, I know what you're talking about. I do too. So like when you talk about this idea of like trying to make it look like the, the, the forethought, the high level forethought that the database engineers over time, over, you know, years of iteration put into this thing to make it look like one transaction was happening after the next. But then when you start getting into like, wait, well, but how did you do that? That's right. the part that's coming. Hey, and, and to be clear, like what you just said, like this wasn't something that was just created. Like I guarantee the first database that was set up, they ran into these problems. They're like, Oh man, how do we, how do we fix this? Right. And so to even get to where we are right now with your SQL servers, your Postgres and all those, like this has truly been years of, all right, how do we, how do we fix this trade off? Because the very next thing we're going to say about is isolation is not easy, right? There's a trade off. Your serialization comes at a performance cost, right? Like when you, when you try to make things look like they're running back to back, you're trading off this simultaneous action for, um, a, a data state guarantee. And so you lose something there. And so where they've done all this stuff, all this magic that Outlaw's excited about and, and probably both me and Jay Z as well, it's because they've, they take, their storage systems and they've, they've figured out how to do things in ways that just make a lot of sense. So we'll talk about it a little bit. So but um, this form though, the serializable isolation in this form that they're talking about, they're saying because of that performance cost that most databases choose to not use this, this right. form. Right. Yep. And we'll talk about the reasons why not. And um, the, uh, there's some pretty cool solutions that they've got for kind of getting around it. They're exciting. know we keep like kind of hinting at what's coming up, but it's just really exciting. Um, so, like we said, uh, most databases use weaker isolation levels, things that are not as good as serializing, uh, but they protect against uh, some, maybe most concurrency issues, but definitely not all of them. And these things aren't just theoretical bugs that somebody can kind of prove on a whiteboard or whatever. These are you know things that have happened throughout history have resulted in huge financial losses, which um, sometimes you imagine like banks, governments, you know, you get auditors involved in like that's its own level of terribleness, you know, uh, corrupted data, data loss, things like that. Uh, you know, all really bad stuff. And these are things that these databases like, no, you know, happens very rarely, you know, but uh, it can happen. And that's things. Could you imagine, I'm just trying to put myself into the mindset of like, imagine you work at some company, doesn't matter what the company, you work at company Acme, but Acme has been very profitable at whatever it is that they're producing, the widgets that they're producing. Um, obviously their, their number one seller are the rocket propelled skates, um, but the, the uh, um, and anvils, um, but imagine like, you know, one day your boss comes in and he's like, Hey, there's this bug in your software. You got to fix it. Right. And you're like, well, it's not in my stuff. Like what? And you know, and you're, you're beating your head up against the wall, you know, you can't figure out like, well, how did that, how did we lose all that money from the customer when I swear, like I did everything right. And then you find out that the problem isn't in your code at all. It's in the software that you're using i.e. the database that you're using has a bug and it costs you, you know, some untold amount of money that they're like, Oh yeah. Uh, but you know, the good news is we fixed that for generations to come in this new version. <laughs> and since you are yeah. on our support plan, we will give you a free upgrade to it. And you get one month free. Yeah. But you got, <clears throat> but that's if you do it this year though, cause your subscription runs out at the end of the month. Right. 
Yeah, you mentioned like uh, you know you have some sort of big data loss or corruption problem. Something really bad happens, and you like call in like the maybe like the MySQL family, and they they you know fly uh, Mrs. and Mr. MySQL in to kind of look at your transaction log, and they kind of go through it, go through it, and then they're like, mm, "Yeah, we see what happened here. That stinks." <laughs> all right here it is we highlighted it uh, have a good day yep, <laughs> you know there's nothing sure. we could do about it. this is I, I, one of the things we just can't do anything about i just think it's so sweet that joe thinks that my sequel was written by a husband and wife team and they work together and they go traveling to like you know fix the bugs together like everything's together like they, you know you picture like just such a sweet happy couple right yeah, yeah, that's it's a, totally how it worked yeah it's totally <laughs> how it worked yeah. Hey, so, so I don't know about you guys. When I read this in the book, I was like, oh man, I'm sure I was this person at one point. Um, they said that there's like this common theme that if you're doing like financial transactions and, and things that, that you absolutely need to make sure are perfect, you have to be using a relational database because they have the transactions. But what was so mind blowing for me here is, um, most databases you qu- use weak isolation. And for that reason alone, there are things that can go wrong. So you are not guaranteed 100% that that transaction to where you move money from Jay-Z's account to outlaws happened exactly the way it should be. If you don't recognize exactly which isolation level you're using. And that to me was like, Oh man, <laughs> like, I'm wow. pretty sure Alan, that during this series, maybe within recent episodes, I think you've said something very similar to that. I probably have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. pretty sure I recall, like, uh, as we were talking about, uh, like document databases versus, uh, and, and there was an example that was given about document databases. And I think you had mentioned something like, no, nah, you know, for financial stuff, you probably want transactions. Oh, I probably did say it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like when I read this, I was like, "Oh man, <laughs> yep. this is bad." I just imagine myself, bad. like you know, a couple of years ago, like you know, sitting in a, a boardroom, big fancy boardroom, and someone's like, "What database are we going to use for our, our new banking system that we're going to write? We're going to disrupt the uh, finances." And I'd be like, "I got this relational." <laughs> <laughs> Look, one that's got transactions. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! Nailed it. <laughs> Acid compliance. Yo. So- <laughs> uh, I'll send you the invoice. That's so funny. <laughs> not to. even not even like a specific vendor just <laughs> relational that's, yeah. where, <laughs> that's where we're it. going like dbengine.com go pick one. Oh man make sure it's got that transaction oh, checkbox right now you know why you should listen to us well honestly <laughs> we to be the fair, answers um the amount of bugs i write like the, just the amount of bugs my application code is dealing with the database i mean you're going to deal with like a thousand bugs mine for every one of these that happens Man, it's so insane. All right, so let's get into the first one here. Read committed. So this is an isolation level, right? Um, and it gives you two guarantees. And it's, man, it's so important. So if, if you've never listened to another thing that we've ever said and actually paid attention, you should probably listen to this stuff right here because this matters a whole lot. So again, read committed has two guarantees. When you're reading from the database, you will only see data that has been committed. That means there's what's called no dirty reads. Um, you can't read data that is currently in the process of being written, but hasn't been committed. All right. And then the second is when you're writing to the database, you will only overwrite data that has been committed, 
meaning there'll be no dirty rights. So what that means, again, is if somebody is in the process of writing to a record, you cannot actually write to that same record until that first one was committed, right? And that's what it means, no dirty rights. You can't write something that actually hadn't finished writing already. So very important to understand those two things. Okay. Again, I'm going to say it again. Put your put your hat back on, your thinking cap, right? You are trying to write this thing from scratch. How might you implement this, right? And you haven't gotten to the next section, right? <laughs> yeah, I did this. I totally did this. Yeah, so you haven't gotten to that section. So you're like, okay, well, how could I implement this Like, if I'm writing it to the file? And like, if you're only talking about like updating a single value, that doesn't sound so rough, right? But... If you have multiple indexes, that means there's multiple files. So you've written data to one and you've saved it, right? So does the mere act of saving it count as committing? And then something else can now read that thing while you're busy writing to the other file. But then, oh no, that write failed. So you got to go back and undo the previous one, right? Those are, those are the types of thought processes that are running through my head as I'm reading this. Yep. As I'm reading it, I'm thinking like, oh, wow, this is a really good solution. You know, so when you're writing the database, you only overwrite data that's been committed. If you're reading and it's not committed, it's just kind of like you read it a half second earlier. Like, who cares? Uh, it's fine. This is the solution. This solution is perfect. You solved it. Good job, database people. Then you read to the, the but where they go on and talk about how uh, it doesn't protect against like uh, incrementing race conditions. Like two processes try to read a value and write at the same time. Uh, there's a nice example there in the book where it basically says like, you know, someone kind of grabs the value, but by the time they get around to uh, trying to write it, you know, it's still got an old snapshot. And so the the, the math there doesn't work out. Um, not my specialty. But, uh, yeah, it just. <laughs> well, I mean, and <laughs> in, in there was also the like the mention in the last episode of the transaction manager. Right. Uh, it was in one of the footnotes that, uh, you know, isn't in the digital version. But, but, and I was thinking like, okay, well, you know, maybe the transaction manager can help do some magic in this scenario to help. Right. And, and I was totally going at it from like maybe a different route than what's coming, but the way that where like the industry landed was like, it's one of those things. uh, This goes back to your point earlier at the start, Alan, where you're talking about like, there's things that you see as like configuration or whatever. And you're like, you just kind of gloss over. You're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like, I'm not, I'm not a DBA. I don't, whatever. I don't care. Like, you know, like, yep. you know, your thing. And I, and I, that's what I love about you. You, you know, that thing. And I got to go move the logo three pixels to the left. Right. I'll be back. Right. Right. Right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, there's things that you just take, there's so much technology you can't help, but take for granted, like some of the things, you know, that's one of the things like going back to like our new year's thing. I think it was like the things that we love about the show, like the forced learning, because we, you know, we forced ourselves to go back and no longer take for granted some of these concepts and this being one of them. Right. So yeah, I've yeah. seen this several times. I remember things saying like SQL configurations, you know, you can kind of like set the isolation level, uh, which at the time I, I, you know, I basically went to Google. What is the good isolation level? Like <laughs> yeah, it was what's the, the fast one. one or what's the best one? That's what, right. you know how I would kind of give up before I would see it like recommitted, but like great. Or, you know, if I was trying to get faster, I would look for another one. Uh, read uncommitted. Fine. I don't care in this case, you know? And so that, that like, that's kind of like the laser focus. I was on the problem at the time and just moved on quickly. So to kind of read about it here, be like, Oh, it actually 
meant something. It wasn't just some like <laughs> crappily named, you know, uh, config that Microsoft set, you know, and has just been kicking around. It's like this actually like means something to databases in general. Dude, that's totally it. What you just said is it's like you see all these configurations. It's like, man, why did they name it this? Like, what it, what does that mean? But hey, real quick before we move on from this, because Joe, he mentioned it, but he kind of glossed over it. And this is important, this incrementing problem thing. Just imagine the three of us read the same record at once and we all get ID one back. I go to update that thing and now it should be ID two, right? Like we, we add, or I added something and now it's ID two. Well, Jay-Z and outlaw read that same record at the same time. So they both have ID one as well. And so when they go to increment it, they're each trying to set it to two as well, which is not right because it conflicts with what my new value is. And that's the problem with read committed right there is Everything could have happened just fine, right? That record was written. It had ID one, but then multiple people got that record. And when they went to write again, they didn't do anything wrong, but now you have a problem with this incrementing thing. So that's, that's why it's important to understand the two guarantees that recommit has. And yep. they actually talk about this later. Um, I think we talk about it in this episode. Yeah, they call them um, lost updates, and the reason is because it, when we all read the value, let's say like Alan, you're actually updating it, Alan and I read it. Uh, we read it while it was still being committed; it hadn't been committed yet. So we saw the old value of one. Then I go and set it to two, you know, one greater. Uh, meanwhile, Alan, yours finished, and so now it's two. I just reset it to two. Outlaw read it at the same time as me. He goes and sets it to two. The real value should be whatever two plus two is. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so we consider those two to be lost updates and nothing wrong happened. Like everything w- happened as was designed. It went. It didn't take the value that was being written because that hadn't been committed. It added to it. Everything was right. The ultimate value wrong. Right. And now going back to the fin- financial uh, you know, use case for databases and financial transactions. Now imagine that that's not just an identifier, but a balance, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like maybe I was supposed to get more money. <laughs> added to my account and now suddenly i'm not i'm gonna be a little bit upset yeah hey and how do that, you figure out what went wrong there you know like who like which, oh yeah man. And, hey and this is actually that particular example is coming up in this next section which is snapshot isolation and repeatable reads this so, is where we're getting into the fun parts yeah the the meat of this like it's funny is, is it not sort of ridiculous that we get excited about this kind of stuff because i mean I don't know. We've been using these technologies for two decades, a long time. Yeah. And, and now you're like, Oh man, there's, there's the magic. <laughs> like it actually means something. <laughs> it's like that in all of life though. Like, like, cause this is the beauty of the internet now, right? Like it's so easy to just get lost into like how something works. They could be totally ridiculous. It doesn't have to be something as complex as like, how does a plane stay in the air, right? Like how does that work? Right? Even though the wings are wobbling, don't ever if you have a if you have a window seat and you're don't on a look. wing, don't just go ahead and close that. Because you don't <laughs> that is creepy when you see those wings flapping. Wait, why is that bending? This isn't a yeah. bird. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, this is like that episode of Twilight Zone. Um but yeah, like there's so many crazy things. Like how how does the heat pump work? You were I think talking about that one time recently, you know, and you start so getting cool. into therm- thermodynamics and you're like Oh my gosh. That's I amazing. never did think about that. Yeah. So but amazing. heat does track cold and cold does attract heat. 
you know, like there's just weird little things. And so that's why like there's things that we've, we, you know, as anyone's going through life, there's things that you take for granted. But then when you take the moment to like appreciate it and like study it, you're like, Oh, that's how that works. That's why that's awesome. And so this is, this was one of those moments for me. Yeah. So cool. All right. So snapshot isolation and repeatable reads, these address read skew. Um, and so an example of a non repeatable read here is sort of what outlaw was talking about. So, um, an example is given where a customer has two bank accounts, gets gets her balance of account one, and then some moments later, after a transfer of $100 from account two to account one, the customer gets the balance for account two. Well, the problem is the customer has an old value from account one and a new value from account two, so it looks like the customer is missing $100, right? And this is because there were multiple different things reading two different places while, while operations were happening. Right. So if you didn't follow that completely clearly, just know that money's moving from one place to another. And somewhere in that you have your, you've read an old value of that place where money um, was uh, transferred out of or whatever. And so now it looks like you're missing some money. Right. Whereas if you just refreshed it after that, they'd both show up and everything would be good. Right. You'd see that your money had moved. So, yeah, and the trick there is that the, the the client, the person on the web page, ended up issuing two queries. Query A hit account A, query two uh, hit account B, and uh, you know by the time we got to the B, <laughs> the transaction hadn't gone through, but it hadn't gone through the first time, and so yeah, the numbers were off, just like I said. And what's crazy is going back to the point that you two were making earlier. This is not a bug. In fact, yep. this is acceptable. This is, this is, <laughs> I know you're like, wait, how can that, but for recommitted isolation, if that's the isolation level you're going to use for your database, this is accepted. Yep. Isn't that crazy? So this is but, why like you got to know like what your data patterns are going to be, like what, what you're trying to accomplish to know like which one of these isolation levels you need to use. And you like, have to log in and say again. I was going to make a dumb joke. Go ahead. Oh, please do. Yeah, I want to hear a dumb joke. That's why whenever I log into my bank, uh, I always give a couple refreshes. I'm like, that can't be right. Come on, no way. (laughs) That's actually pretty good. That's pretty funny. Got me. Probably skewed. But know, too, that like what we just mentioned was a very temporary state. So the chances of you seeing it are very slim. But they can, and things look really bad, right? So this can happen. Yeah, and on Reddit, it happens all the time. Happened today to me, actually. Oh, Reddit's awful about it. We've talked about that before. You can hit refresh 100 times, and you'll get, you know, 20 different counts on on the pages. Yeah, Yeah, but I think I would think that would have to do with the distributed nature of that particular database. So I don't know if that would be an example of this. But we'll say that, like, uh, you know, with Joe talking about the bad jokes, it's got me thinking about, you know, dad jokes. And all I want to just say is, like, uh, I don't know if you two like to go camping, but it is intense. (laughs) (laughs) I love that one. Uh, Yeah. uh, Hey, you never go on a date with, uh, with a pastry chef. You know why? I, oh man, am I going to say this wrong? Can't think of it. I'm you like, always get dessert deserted. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I said it exactly how, right. Dang it! How, how do you? So good. How do you organize a space party? Space party. You plan it. 
Oh, <laughs> that's very geez. good. Yes. Wow. Yes. Mine was the best though. Yours was pretty good. I like it. And you know, that's a tough crowd because he only gave you a pretty good. So, <laughs> true. I, you know, whatever, man. I, I'll just say, like, whenever I go around town, I always keep my guitar in the car now. It's, yeah. It's good for traffic jams. Nice. That one's from Mike RG. Thank you, Mike RG. Very nice. Yeah. So, oh, uh, so we mentioned the person querying twice, and, you know, we said it doesn't really happen that often, but it stinks. Here's an example where. It's really important that that happens. That do- doesn't happen. Uh, imagine you're taking a backup of the database, and by the time it gets to you know row one, <laughs> the transaction is not committed. It gets to row two or table two, you know whatever. Um, if you're doing a multi-object transaction, by the time it gets there, the value has changed, and so now the backup you, that you've taken has <laughs> kind of happened uh, inconsistently. So different parts of the database tables are in different states based on the, um, where the backup was at that time. Uh, that's a terrible, terrible problem. It doesn't reflect the database at any point in time, right? It's this like weird kind of mix of things that never actually exist in reality. That's not a backup, right? We expect our, our backups to be a snapshot. Perfect. Right? Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I don't even want to call it a snapshot. I expect them to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. You just imagine like a naive person to, to a backup. Be like, well, okay, I'll just query every table and write it to a file and we'll call backup done, right? No way. <laughs> no. If, if you've got any real traffic on that thing, it's going to be all sorts of out of whack. I mean, this is why, like, it's totally, uh, you know, tangent here. Oop, tangent alert. But, um, you know, y- if you're going to have any kind of disaster recovery type of plan, right, and backups would be a part of that, you can't just, like, have the plan. And you can't even, like, just execute it. You have to exercise it. you got to go and make sure that, okay, we have to restore. Did we restore what we thought we restored? Did we get what we thought we wanted? Is it in the state that we wanted it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Then we're good. Otherwise you can think like, no, we got a disaster recovery plan. We back up the database every night. And then you go to open up that database and you're like, Hey, why is the database zero bytes? Why is the backup zero bytes? Oh yeah. There was a bug in the backup. Oh, also, uh, mention, uh, OLAP queries. So, uh, like we've talked about OLAP a lot of uh, several times, uh, basically uh, analytical queries that do like, like big counts. So you've got some data warehouse and you want to see all, you know, all your sales and a bunch of different fancy math things. Um, uh, that's going to take a while to process, right? You imagine if like the results were wildly skewed by whoever's, you know, shopping now or whatever, like that would be crazy. That would be very bad. So we've got, uh, techniques for, for mitigating that, which we're going to get into. I don't want to jump ahead yet, but I really want to though. (laughs) So, so here's the spoiler or spoiler alert to these problems. Snapshot isolation is a typical solution to these problems. And this is where it was like, okay, I've definitely seen snapshot isolation as like a term in a configuration thing. You're like, well, yeah, of course you're going to, whatever that is. You're going to give me two of those. I want two of those. Do you have it in red? I want two of them in red. Yeah. And if you could put it on that server, that'd be great. But you don't like really think about it, right? But now we're going to get into thinking about it. Yeah. And think about how many, like we talked about replicas a lot, right. And what it meant to kind of take a, a, you know, add a new replica or take one down or whatever. We talked about it, but I didn't really think about the mechanisms beneath, you know, of course it just makes sense. Like, well, first you take a snapshot of the data and then you start tailing the log. But what if the snapshot takes 30 minutes 
what happens to all the data that has come in since you started? Like, how do you know when to tail? Like, there's all sorts of questions there that we didn't really dive into at the time. But, you know, in, in principle, that's absolutely it. From 1,000 you know, foot view, like, that's it. That's what you do. But in practice, like, if you think about how you would implement the, that in the file, uh, that's, that's a bit tougher. So this is a very popular feature <clears throat> across I would have to venture it has to be on all the major database platforms, but at least in the book, they called out like Postgres, Oracle, SQL Server, MySQL. Uh, this other one, I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it, NODB? Yeah, so it's actually MySQL using the NODB engine behind the scenes, right? Okay. Oh, because, I'm sorry. I misread that. Yes, you're right. Because MySQL has multiple different engines that you can use. So the, in a nutshell, each transaction, when it goes to to do its reads and writes, it's going to read from a what they're calling a consistent snapshot. It's getting a snapshot of the things that it's reading. But so in the example that was given before about like the three of us each reading from the, from the table, we would each get our own snapshot that we're reading and writing to. And then the database will figure it out later. Right. And this is where the magic happens. That's that's, that's like a high level kind of like, don't get into the details yet don't worry about the details yet kind of like explanation as to like what's happening here. But then that way we don't overwrite each other. We don't overstep each other in the things that we're reading and writing. Right. So, so now how do they make that happen? If we were to take that to an example, right? If, if Joe and outlaw are writing to the same area and I'm trying to read it has to know that for Joe, he's isolated from outlaw. It has to know that for me, I'm isolated from Joe and outlaw's rights. So, so we sort of have three different states that we're working with. And, and that's why it's important that what he said, transactions read from a consistent snapshot. So each one of us will have our own consistent snapshot that we're working with, which is absolutely insane. Now I don't know, but in my mind, I'm imagining that the that the transaction manager plays a role in some of this decision. You know, like you know, of deciding that, like, hey, these two things, you know, need this particular state. This this one needs that particular state. This other one needs this state. You know, like uh, I'm imagining that, like, it's par- maybe at a high level part of that orchestration. I could be wrong, but that's why I brought it back up earlier. You know, it was just like, just kind of like think that like there are things happening at the connection level to make decisions of like how to manage those, you know, that interact, those interactions. So looking through the show notes, uh, it looks like we don't get there. Uh, I didn't do the show notes today, but the book goes there. The book gets into how that works and it's super cool. So that might be because this is a longer chapter. Yeah. There's some meat here. There's some yeah, meat there's here. Some here, but uh, yeah, I'm so excited for you to hear about uh, the standard techniques for doing it. Cause it blew my mind. Like I started thinking about how I implement it and I was like, okay, I guess I can kind of, am I on, am I in the ballpark? Right. Uh, uh that's kind of no, wow. I would say no. Dang it. So yeah. nothing it's to do with the transaction. Manager. Slick. The transaction it's manager slick. doesn't play a part in it at all. It's way dumber. Yeah. Really? It's yeah. not very, yeah. It's when amazing. I say dumber, I just mean it's like, it's really elegant. You can it's tell really who's read ahead. Yeah. 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 You're, 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 you're see, like I'm a write ahead kind of guy. You're a read ahead <laughs> yeah. kind of guy. So, yeah. <laughs> and that's a database joke. Hey. Right, yeah. Nice. <laughs> 
so high level, uh, we can talk about uh, how slight, uh, snapshot isolation is accomplished. And basically, the deal is that you uh, usually write locks to stop dirty writes. So you kind of say like, um, I, I don't know how you say it, um, lock the rows. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, and like you, uh, so the books mentioned that uh, locking the rows is usually the the kind of normal strategy for kind of handling that. Um, I couldn't really think of any other way to do it. <laughs> I don't think, I don't remember if they mentioned another one though. They didn't go deep into it here anyways. Yeah. But yeah, they just say that you lock it, right? You lock something for a reader, right? Yeah. So basically saying like, Hey, someone is writing to this. You just got to wait a minute or you got to give up or, you know, whatever you need to do. I don't care. This is not in the state where you can do any writing to it. So this is kind of like the opposite approach that we mentioned of recommitted. We're basically saying you can't write unless it's in a good spot. And uh, what's nice about this is that um, by only having a, the the locks on the writes, it means that reads never block writes and writes never block reads. They're totally independent. All right. Um, so because there may be multiple transactions going on at once, there may need to be multiple copies of the database objects in play at once. Um, this is referred to as a multi-version concurrency control. Yeah, yes. Did not see that coming. Yeah. And so Outlaw just did the, the mind exploding thing. And this is where things get really cool. So, so what they just said, right? Like this record that you're, that you're trying to update here, we each have our own copy of it more or less. Right. And that is where the magic starts. Yeah, I never imagined. Like we we've talked about B-Tree database, we've talked about LSMs, and when we talked about the LSMs, we said it's it's normal to kind of mark records as zombies and kind of keep it pending until you compact the logs. And I was fine with that. And then we talked about B-Trees and how you can kind of go in, and you could do your writes in place, but you know, often it made more sense to just kind of create a new row or new page or whatever and kind of repoint the indices. And I was fine with that, but I never thought about it keeping track of multiple versions and being able to tell you what the data was at any particular kind of point in time. Yeah, so said another way, like go back to that, that B tree example, and every leaf of that tree is a separate file, and the three of us happen to be doing queries against the same particular leaf, and it's maintaining, oh, there's well, because of this state, there's uh these three each have their own copy of it, and maybe a fourth one coming later. Oh, well, Joe has committed his, so his is out, but Alan and Michaels are still in play. So there's the there's the updated version and then there's Michael and Allen's that are still in play. Like the management of now the the leaf nodes of the tree has has gotten extreme. Yeah. It, and actually it is in the notes. This is coming up this section. I, I don't know what I was thinking. Okay. We're gonna we're getting there very soon. So so this next part, they say they actually call out the difference between the read committed and the snapshot isolation is for the read committed. Each read has its own snapshot that it's reading from. Whereas with the snapshot isolation, all the reads are coming from that same, that same um, snapshot that was made. So, so instead of each, each of us having our own read that we're doing, we're, if you're in snapshot isolation, you're always looking back at that same version that you looked at the first time. Yeah, which is nuts. And how do you know when it's okay to uh, discard older versions, right? Like, when does that get cleaned up? How does that process work? Well, this uh, is where I was thinking. That, this is where I was thinking that the trans- transaction manager would come into play. Like, okay, he's done with that. That set of tables. Like, what I was thinking of, like, if you if you had these the versions of each snapshot of, like, say, like 
you know, one leaf of that tree, right? If each one was versioned, then the lower number, once the connection to that lowest number is no longer in play, then that's the one you know you can get rid of. Okay, right? yeah, yeah, you're on the right track then. I, I misunderstood what you're saying. Yeah, so basically that's exactly what it is. There's an incrementing number that's kind of global for each transaction. It's got its own ID. And when it says like, okay, let me look at all my open ones and the lowest number there is 14, that means I can discard everything 13 and below. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Hey, and so while I was putting together some of the notes for this, I was curious. Um, they they showed a little example of of Postgres's implementation, and I'm not going to try and explain it because it just confused the heck out of you on the show. However, I did go and I was curious. Like Postgres is an open source database. They have this stuff out there. They have a README <laughs> for how they do this stuff. Man, if you go open that thing, it is ginormous. The README. And it's talking about all the different ways that they handle some of this stuff. Man, if you if you want a mind-bending exercise, go read this link. Um, so, anyway, with that out of the way. You ever feel like if we had all of this, re- all of these resources at our fingertips, you know, when we when we were in college, for example, or university, like, would we have taken advantage of it? <laughs> No, no totally not. <laughs> no way. No, totally not. I mean, that's the reality, right? Like, you want to say, like, oh man, if only I knew then. Now, what I if I only knew now, if I only knew. Wait, whatever. You know this <laughs> thing I'm trying to say, and if I knew it, I would have said it, and then I would have knew it, and then it'd have been amazing, <laughs> and I would exactly. have known it, and I would have said it. Just, just what he said right there. Clear as mud. <laughs> uh, so. So on this Postgres thing, their implementation basically uses some metadata fields on a row. Um, there are two specifically created by and deleted by, which contain the transaction IDs. So here's the cool part, right? Like you query this Postgres row, you never see those fields. These are internal to the database system tracking these things, right? Um, if you were to delete a row, that deleted by field is updated. The row is not deleted at that point in time, um, but garbage collection will pick it up later and, re- and remove it physically from the table at a time when it's deemed that it's no longer accessed. So it's doing a logical delete on a row. So your table is growing. You don't see it because if you ever query it, you're only getting back the one record that exists in the table, but there might be 10 other versions of that record that are just waiting to be garbage collected and they have metadata behind the scenes that it's allowing Postgres to do this type of thing. I just imagine this going kind of hand in hand with you know earlier discussions from this book where it was talking about like you would tombstone the record was the was the terminology that was you, you know given you would tombstone the record but then something like in a write ahead log would have the more up to date version of it and eventually uh you know the compaction as you call it like it might represent like a whole new file but now that we're talking about the snapshot isolation in my mind I was kind of thinking like well I suppose what you could do is uh you know just create a whole new file altogether and then you're only writing to it because writes are much faster than uh, edits to the file, right? So you could just rewrite all the, you know, like let's say that that particular leaf of the tree had a total of 10 rows of, of 
you know, 10 records of data in it, then you could just write, here's the 10 latest versions of it. Once you get to like, um, I think in the example you gave was like thir- transactions 13 and lower can be removed, right? Then you know that like, okay, whatever those transaction versions are, that can be written out and preserved, right? And and now that the versions of the leaf that still had the tombstone versions can be deleted because those transactions are gone, right? Does that make sense? And it very may well happen like that, right? Um, behind the scenes with the garbage collection and all that kind of thing. Well, yeah, I mean, really, more to the point is like we're building on concepts, right? We started with okay. the idea of tombstoning. We started with the idea of like, hey, what if we have this write ahead log? And that actually built upon the idea of like, hey, what if we like manually did this thing in a text file with some shell scripts, right? So, like, the whole book, the author, he did such a fan- fabulous job of just like, introduce concept let's build on it build on it build on it and we might might shelve that for a minute we're going to introduce another topic before and then you know you know you're 200 pages into the book and all of a sudden boom we're going to come back and we're going to build upon this other concept yeah it's really good hey and for any of you that that are sitting there going okay well you have a created by and a deleted by what about an updated um if you've ever spent any time doing triggers in like sql server or anything there's there's typically not a deleted by or it or an updated by it's always a deleted by because the way that they handle it is if you update a record you basically deleted that old data right and you inserted new data it treats it as a as like an insert instead of an update so that's why you'll see the inserted and deleted and you don't get an update well right and again go back to what i just said writes are faster than the updates. Yes. So that's why from a performance point of view, you're going to prefer to just, you know, it's easier to just append a new record to the end of some write ahead log, which might even be at like a, you know, a, a, an index level or, or, you know, that, that snapshot uh, level. And then, and, and then, you know, uh, persist it later, but, you know, go ahead and tombstone the original. Yep. So, Do we do we let Joe do it? Do we let him out of the cage? No. How you no. feeling tonight, Joe? Not good. I don't want good? to do it. Yeah. <laughs> He's grumpy, grumpy Joe. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want. Didn't you have some like great NPR voice though last time that? I uh, did. Yeah. What was the the? Well, I think I, I tried to go for like shock shock. I think I don't. Yeah. He did the remember. double shock jock thing, and that that was confusing. Okay. Yeah. So so this time. If you haven't already, um, Outlaw mentioned at the top of the show that we got a couple of reviews and one of them that we got on Twitter was like truly amazing, right? Like, um, he basically said that we helped him change his career, right? Like while he's playing video games, which is amazing. Like if you can play video games, listen to us and change your career and potentially change your life. That's amazing. And it was truly killer to, to read that and see that we have helped somebody. So, if you find that we've helped you out and and you find yourself with a minute or two, please do, if you get a chance, leave us a review. We have some helpful links at codingblocks.net slash review. And we really do. Like, we say it, but we absolutely mean it. We love it when we get the feedback and we see what you guys are doing or learning or, or if there's certain things that you like and love and all that kind of stuff. You know, please do leave it. We, we read all of them. So thank you very much. All right. Well, with that, it's time to head into my favorite portion of the show. Surveys. All right. 
So, <clears throat> this one, let's see, this is what, episode 204? So, according to Tucker's trademark rules of engagement, Jay-Z, you are up first. I feel like I'm the Atlanta Falcons of this um of this particular challenge, right? You're, I didn't know I didn't know Georgia had Falcons. <laughs> they do. do they? Yeah. Do they? I thought it was like California birds. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um I, I was gonna say you were like the, the 1980 Braves. That's that'd be pretty good too, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh okay, so uh Joe, you are up first. And yours to start us off with is going to be name something appealing about working from home. Hmm. I mean, pants, but it's the lack of pants. So I don't know how to say that <laughs> executive loungewear. That's my okay. answer. Executive loungewear. That's definitely what the people said. Okay. Okay. I, I, I mean, basically you're just talking about like a dress code kind of thing. What you wear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, clothes. Yeah, all right. Or lack of, yeah. Okay. Uh, No commute. Commute, okay. Mm. All right, well, uh, let's see here. Let me break out my scoreboard here. Jay-Z went first. No clothes slash dress code. <laughs> Number one answer on the board. Ding, ding, ding. 28 points. You got to be freaking kidding me, man. I can't that win Alan. Me so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, I can't win for the life of me. Underwood uh, says no commute, which I'm going to, I'm going to give you this one as great commute came in as number three on the board. So there's 17 points on the board for Alan. Uh, flexible hours was the number two answer for 26 <laughs> C family. Number four, 10 points avoid coworkers <laughs> was number five for four points. And like, you know what? If you, if that's, if that's what you're looking for, maybe, maybe that maybe it's not even the working from home part. You should consider like should just a whole home. other job. Yes. Yeah. Uh, save money. Uh, number six with three points. Avoid boss again. That one's like right up there with avoid coworkers. Uh, what number are we on? Seven for uh, three points. Eight is bathroom anytime. Two, <laughs> no babysitter. <laughs> no babysitter is last. Uh, for two. <laughs> wow. Yeah, wow. childcare can get expensive, man. Like that one. Uh, I can, you can appreciate that. All right, so let's see. How about? Alan. Hey, wait, wait. I have to oh. point out the irony here. As I right. said, I feel like the Atlanta Falcons. And we went to the Super Bowl and played against the New England Patriots, and they beat us 28-3. to And I'll point out that Jay-Z got 28 points <laughs> first round. It's a sign. It is a sign. I'm going down. I'm, I'm going to lose <clears throat> hard. Okay. Uh, let me make sure we haven't already done this one. Okay. Name a job. Alan, you're going first. Name a job that requires a lot of education. Uh, doctor. Doctor. Okay. Dang. Um, Dang is not on the list. I'll, t I'll give you another. Uh, <laughs> okay. I mean, I want to say lawyer, but it's not going to be doctor. Um, but I also have nothing else. So let's go with lawyer. Lawyer. That's okay. going to be number two <laughs> or number one. <laughs> so first of all, it wouldn't be proper if I didn't introduce myself as doctor. Doctor. <laughs> Doctor, doctor, 
Doctor? Okay, I love that scene. Do you know in the movie? I do not. Joe, do you know the movie? Ah, oh, come on. Spies yeah. Like Us. Here's the scene where, like... Uh, well, that's been years is ago. Is that the kids movie? Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase are meeting the other... Uh, I think oh. it was, like, Russian soldiers that they were meeting. And, and they were all... They had lied and said that they were doctors, and the other people that they were meeting were doctors. And so there was, like, doctor, 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 <laughs> doctor, doctor. I have to go watch it now. Ah, whatever. Um, okay. Alan, this is going to make you feel a lot better. All right. Doctor, number one answer on the board. Look at me. 31 points. That's not enough points. Alan taking a lead. Very nice. All right. For a moment. All right. Now, Alan, this is not going to make you happy. Yeah, I know. No way. Lawyer. Number two is 30 points. Tied for number one at 31 no points. No way. Come on, man. Wow. So. Not fair. It's like a net, net, you know, nothing, you know, net, no gain for you, Alan. Uh, so ridiculous. At the end of the day, we might as well not even have that question. Uh, <laughs> number three answer was teacher. Number four, college professor. Oh, teacher was 21. College professor, number four for 11. And nurse is the number five answer with four points. And this is why, like, you know, they didn't talk to anyone who uh, is into software development because no. nowhere in there did, did software developer come up. Yeah. We're not, wow. we don't, we're not educated. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> By the way, here's some education for you. Uh, there are five types of Falcons in the U S and uh, a lot of them can be found in Georgia actually. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Very nice. All right. Um, Joe, I th- we'll do this like we've done for the past few since uh, this is your episode to go first on you get to pick the final so your choices for the final question are something about uh let's just say space uh online shopping or household items online shopping online shopping is your choice ebay got this ebay yeah i mean yeah 1990 called (laughs) all right Name something you might prefer to buy in person rather than online. That's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I can't think of anything. Wow. (laughs) Oh, no. In person. Something you might prefer to buy in person rather than online. All right, I gotta, I gotta get out of my own head and realize, you know, I gotta think like someone else. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna go with, I'm gonna go with a car. Car, okay. Clothes, clothes. Oh, okay. dang it! Yeah, they gotta That's fit, so good. man. They gotta fit. I'm gonna win. That's so good. I'm gonna win. <laughs> I'm so excited for you. Oh gosh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. I got to contain my excitement. I got to be, I got to be impartial to this. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Show me mommy. No. Um. <laughs> <laughs> mommy. So Joe means. says car. Joe car was the number two answer okay, on the good. board. Oh, I need to beat him by right. seven. So you have a chance. It was 28 points. 
20 wow that's a lot of points out of 100 right but joe dang no but but joe close no man close was the number one answer joe of course it was okay can't be much more than it's gotta be 12 more i need 12 points man i need i need i need 40 is what i need You've you've said so many numbers now. (laughs) I need 11 points. I need 12. If I can get 40 points, I got this in the back. If only, if I get 100 points with this next question, I might win. I got it. I just need one more than him. If I get one more, one. That's right. Any other numbers? You haven't said any fractional numbers. I will stick with with 40. Okay. (laughs) If I can get pi to the thousandth digit. That's right. Okay. Close was the number one answer. And I'm going to go ahead and write these points in here. With 29 points on the board. Oh, come on. That's ridiculous. Joe Joe wins again. I've had good answers tonight. That's the the crazy part. Some of these Joe couldn't even come up with an answer. And he stumbled his way into a victory. Yes. Man, I am of the people. <laughs> I'm connected. Oh gosh. Uh the, the questions of humanity. The questions that you gave up, Joe, were name a planet or other than jewelry, what is the most expensive single item in your house or in your home? That one especially, I was like, okay, they didn't ask anybody that's into computers at all. Yeah. Yeah, Eric just right. No, TV that's was cool. the most expensive. I was like, really? Right. Yeah, I haven't seen my right. computer, have you? Yeah. <laughs> like, what kind of TV have you got? All right. That's a pretty big TV. Was Pet anywhere on that list for things you wouldn't buy online? Ooh. I bought Pet online. Oh, yeah. I totally did. <laughs> Alan will buy everything online. I, no, I, oh, I, I, guess I, I guess I did forget... In the spirit of going through all of the, oh, you know what? Next time I should I should uh, give all the other ones first. So uh, clothes was number one, 29 points. Car, 28 points. Food was the number three item at 18 points. Something people would rather buy in, in person. Uh, mattress is 18. I'm sorry. Mattress is 14 points. It was the fourth answer. Fifth Come on. was jewelry for four. Perfume or cologne was the sixth answer for four points. And last but not least is shoes for two. So no mail order bride or anything like that. Wow, Alan. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, oh, you know, they buy. <laughs> Jeez. God. Can we get a sensor right in here? There's a light. Lawyers. I don't you know okay? if that's what done online or not. The, the lawyers are questioning. They're looking at some. They're knocking <laughs> dust off of books. Hold on. They're like, we got education, but we ain't got that much. That's right. Uh, All right. Well, let's get back into uh, (laughs) now that now that we have uh, solidified Joe's victory. What is that? Is that like eighteen in a row? Like how? Dude, it's so stupid, man. Like I had good answers. I had the number one answer, and he somehow had the tying number one answer. But you see those answers, right? Like, you don't really want to be connected to that audience, you know? <laughs> you know what you and German Sausage have in common, Alan? Uh, don't. You're the They're worst. The worst. <laughs> <laughs> he got my joke, even! He even beat me to the punchline! I'm on fire. He's on a roll! He is. He's got it tonight. He's got, like, an achievement unlocked. <laughs> 
There we go. Uh, Well, okay. Man. All right. So getting back into this thing. So the next portion is visibility for seeing a consistent snapshot. So consistent snapshots work by following a certain set of rules. Um, At the start of a transaction, a list of all the transactions in progress are identified and ignored by any reads. Any rights made by transactions that were aborted are ignored. Any rights made by a newer transaction ID are ignored. All other rights are available to read. So, yeah, that's an amazing list. If you're making a database, there you go. There's your list at the start. Get all the transactions, filter out the ones that uh, are aborted or ignored. You can get rid of the ones that are newer. Everything else is fair game. So isn't it just like if your transaction ID is given a certain number, it basically, am I thinking this wrong? That like the simplified way to read this is like any that anything that is your transaction ID or lower is safe to read. But like, yep. you know, you want the maximum of that of whatever that set might be. So, but because if it's if it's written but higher than your ID, which would be newer, then you ignore it. If it was if it was deleted, you're going to ignore it. If it's still in progress, you're going to ignore it. So you only want the things that are like your transaction ID or lower that have been written. That makes yep. sense. And if it's, it, if it is an older transaction that is writing, but it hasn't been committed yet, then it doesn't show up on the table yet. So you can, you don't have to think about right. it. Right. So I, so I had that thought in my mind as I was reading this part. And then as I continued reading, I was like, okay, it, does it break the thing that the simplified version that I just said? And I wonder why they didn't just say the simplified version. <laughs> Because, because, because this well, is the that's reason. That's an implementation, there, though, right? That's an implementation to, detail. But there has and to be a reason why the author went to the to the pains of writing that detail for right? that very reason, right? Like it, what you said would be an implementation detail, right? Like my transaction ID is one, yours is two, and Joe's is three. Well, what if they're not using numbers? What if they're not using? date time type things. What if they're using some other thing, right? Like I would imagine that's an implementation type detail. But if I recall though, in the book, he, they, the author did mention that they are uh, numerical values. And the, in fact, Postgres, I think was one called out where um, <clears throat> there was a max value and it would eventually roll back so around. If you do that, then you can't do what you just said, Right. If you roll it back around ah, and you're number it, one, you can, you can no longer use that, right? You know what, Joe, I take away your win. Alan just won. Uh, survey won. says, yeah. You got it. I won, I won yeah. something. That, that's, that's why. That's why then. Because the transaction numbers can roll. And in the case of it rolling, it can't. you can't just simply look at the numbers that are lower than, than your ID number. Okay. Good, good call. Hey, so they did call out here, and this is pretty this is pretty good, and it makes sense when you hear it. Because the database is never truly updating or deleting values in place, to your point earlier, writes are way faster, so so you're going to err on that side of doing things. Because you're not updating or deleting things in place, a number of running transactions can t- can continue to function from snapshots of those objects with very little overhead. Okay, the very little overhead part of this, I, I was, 
like if you have a database can already be large enough, right? And, and let's say you're a database and like, you know, you're doing something at scale. You've got a bunch of like stack overflow flow famously, you know, has shown their architecture. They're still running on SQL server, right? So you, you, you have like a lot of things happening and, and the database itself is already large. And now you're going to have multiple copies of parts of it in memory or, or maybe it's written. They didn't really get into that part. I don't believe, but uh, you know, you have these different snapshots that are happening and this is considered very little, very small overhead. Well, like, so keep in mind though, they're only talking about the transactions. And if you remember, right, if we go back to and stack overflow is a great example of how they could make something like this work. And I think they even called it out in their, in their architecture pages is the reason they can still use SQL server is because a vast majority of their traffic are reads, right? Most of, most of the things that are happening are people reading stack overflow pages. And so with that, and I think they actually also called out that uh, those reads go to a Redis cache. If I remember, they go to, well, so they have elastic search clusters and then they have Redis caches on top of SQL server. So, all that said, unless there is some sort of write that's happening, they probably don't even need to engage a transaction. Well, so, I mean, yeah. So I know I use C- I, I, the only reason why I called out Stack Overflow though wasn't necessarily to say huge. that they had like a thousand transactions happening against right. the database at any one point, but just to call out that like there are real uses of a relational database and not a distributed database of like. Oh, well, we'll just, you know, uh, big table, all the things or, you know, whatever, like, right. you know, n- no Mongos or whatever, you know, it, it could just be a real relational database and a large one. Right. Right. So, yeah, I, it's, it's weird. Cause I think about it, it's hard to get every scenario crammed into your brain. Right. But even if you had a thousand transactions happening at once, and let's say they're only writing a single record, that's really not a lot of memory requirements that you need there. Now I have seen transactions where you do things like you delete an entire table and there were a million records in the table. So what do you do there? Because you're locking all those rows. That's very um, space intensive, whether it's in Ram or on disc or whatever. So I think different scenarios can, can, play into that. But I think in general, they're saying, well, I guess this is okay. Go ahead. Finish your thought. I'm sorry. Well, I think what they're trying to say is there's very little overhead in what you're doing, because going back to what you said earlier, you're not updating these records in place. You're writing them out somewhere. And so because you're doing that, you don't have a ton of overhead because these rights are fairly cheap as long as you have the space and and the IO on the drive to do it. But the isolation, the thing that's be, that's being isolated though, <clears throat> it's not like it's just a copy of the the one record like in the query example of the three of us for before, each of us have just that single record in, you know, our own versions of that single record. It, in my I was thinking and maybe I'm wrong, you tell Maybe I don't. Maybe I misread it or overlooked it when I when reading it. But I imagined it wasn't. I imagined it was the leaf node of the tree, like whatever that page is, right? Because 
you know, we, we can't both write to the file at the same time. So it has, that's the thing that is being locked at the end of the day is the page file. Well, we're about to get into some implementations of that. So we should probably continue on. And then I think we'll clear this up. Okay. Yeah, and so I basically after reading that kind of last show, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so genius. We've basically got a number with our transaction. We've got a number with the data. We can kind of, uh, you know, like bake it down a little bit to kind of what Allah was just saying to ignore some of those details. We can kind of, you know, basically take the number that's lower, except, you know, we know it's a little bit more complicated than that. But that's kind of the gist of it, right? Super elegant solution, except how do you do that efficiently, right? We're talking about keeping multiple copies of the data, you know, around for potentially, you know, Potentially a long time, right? Um, we got to start with worrying about the garbage collection, right? We've got these other things to think about, right? So, what are the implications of that? You know, we're, this is another example where, like, we're talking about something where, like, a couple times in the same episode, you're like, "Well, that's covered later," and I'm like, oh, "I did read it, but I just read it so long ago that I've forgotten it already." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Snapshot. So this is where we get into a particular like implementation that can be done. And this is talking about indexes specifically because one of the questions that comes up is, all right, so you update a record in the database. Well, you have indexes pointing at that particular table. Well, what do you do there? Right? Like, because those also have to be updated because the whole point of an index is to make a fast search. So considering what we said about database storing multiple snapshots of state, how does it work with an index? Well, they come up with a couple different ways. And one is they have the index point to all the transaction IDs and then they filter them out behind the scenes, right? Like in the query engine itself, not anything you do. You make a query, the query engine determines that, hey, I'm going to filter out these IDs. And then when garbage collection happens, they remove those entries from the index as well. So that's one way of doing it. And that doesn't, yeah. to me, that doesn't sound hyper efficient. Like an index yeah. of indexes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's kind of, you can imagine it's, it's almost like having just a hidden field that you can't normally see. And we've got the indexes set up just like we would have any other time. Yeah, but again, like when you say hidden field, then the natural in, in, in 2023, it's going to let it put this kind of spreadsheet kind of view yeah. of the into somebody's mind. Like, oh, I'm just going to update that one thing. But that's not the thing here. Like this is a whole file that has to be written. That's why I was trying to refer to the page file of the of whatever your 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 tree is for that storage, which I guess more technically to Alan's point is the index that I'm referring to, right? <clears throat> then then that leaf node is the bottom part of that. That that that's the page file for that yeah. part of the index. Well, here's what's cool, right? And, and this is where this is where I'm sure every database is going to handle things a little bit differently, right? SQL Server, Oracle, Postgres, whatever. So this all comes down to implementation details. And this is where it's hard to say exactly what everybody's doing. But they did give an example of Postgres. So one of the things that they say is, hey, if you update something on a record and that update can fit on the same page file in the index, they don't have to change anything, right? They just add that that updated thing to that same page file and the index doesn't have to change. Okay. So, so like as a simple way of saying it, like if, if you had, if this page file had room for 10 records 
but you only have three written in it due to the way your, you know, whatever indexing strategy you, you've chosen, the tree has sh- you know shuffled into a particular way. You only have three records in that file at the moment and you want to update record number two. Well, you're not going to update it in place. You might tombstone it in that same file and write in a fourth record, right? Maybe, or maybe the implementation detail is to overwrite the second one. But it's but yeah, it shows up in the same page file, so nothing has to change, right? Um, other pointers don't have, to, don't have to change. Other pointers don't have to change, so you don't take any performance hit because you're just writing to the same spot where it already was. So that's that's an implementation detail because they know exactly how they're writing these things out in Postgres, right? And, and, it, and another database might do it different. Yeah, and the reason why I wanted to make the clarification of the pointers is going back to that tree example, like each one of that, uh, the 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 nodes of that tree, or I guess more technically, what would they be called? They wouldn't be called the nodes, right? Vertices. Yeah, right. I guess nodes that's technically the graph, but yeah, yeah. Well, the the you know those nodes would would technically be pointers to other files, like oh, for this, uh, you know, for records one through fifty, they're over into this file. For fifty one through a hundred, they're over here, and it's 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 pointers to the individual file. And if you don't have to change that the file that you're writing it to, which would be a new file name. Uh, if you're writing a new file, then, you know, if you did do that, you'd have to update pointers, which could have a cascading effect. But in this case, you you know, if you have the space, you don't have to. So when you said earlier that you got excited, this particular one that we're about to talk about is the one that I was like, Oh, that's amazing. Um, I don't know, Jay Z. You want to take it because you're you're not in your head over there. Well, I just no, I just meant that the part above, just talking about keeping like a version number and like being able to elegantly kind of filter by it. That's the part I was super uh, jazzed about. Um, okay, I mean, I, can I mean, for me, it was it. all of the snapshot, all everything, of the, yeah. everything about snapshotting that we've talked about from that moment that 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 portion was introduced and like my level of excitement has only continued as we continue on with this section. So yeah, I will say. My life, it just so happens in the last couple months, uh, there's been a lot of snapshotting going on. Uh, <laughs> I just, not all good times either. You know, there's, I, I've had some experience with some bad snapshots in my life. You know what I'm saying? But uh, one thing I always, you know, keep thinking about as I was working on it is like, how the heck does this work? And I, I, like, I would find myself like, even Googling again and be like, are you sure that this works that I'm not like missing data or missing updates or something like what if it takes long? What if it gets stalled for hours and hours and sometimes, uh, you know, it would time out and it would, like lose its place. I'm like, how does that even happen? Why can't it pick up? Like, there's all these questions I had and now I've got a better perspective on it. Like why couldn't it resume? It probably failed and resumed several times in the process and I just didn't know it, but eventually it failed long enough for it to basically lose its record. You know, it's transaction timed out and it wasn't able to resume because it got cleaned up probably because, uh, you know, some other problem, but, uh, yeah, it was just kind of nice to like read through this and be like, okay, so I have a different kind of like level of appreciation here. And I understand now why I'm not losing data and like how this works and what it means when you actually, you know, lose the snapshot halfway while you have to start over again, because you've already, you know, kind of lost your, lost your, um, you know, the data got cleaned up. Basically the snapshot isn't available anymore. So before Alan gets into this, this next part that he liked so much, just while you're on top of like applying some of this to other things, one of the thoughts that came through my mind as reading through this section <clears throat> that I, I didn't have a chance to go and check to find out like if there is any relation to it, but it made me think about like uh snapshotting at the file system level. 
like the feature that Microsoft introduced, you know, years ago and like, you know, volume uh, shadow volumes and, and uh, snapshotting at the file system for backups. Like, huh? Well, I guess, you know, there was talk, like I remember years ago, they're them talking about like, well, we're going to treat the file system as a database. And now you're like, huh, maybe I I get it now. Yeah. All right, so this next one. So we talked about having these IDEs that can sort of be hidden filtered by by the engine. This one I thought was just beautiful. So they talk about an approach by CouchDB. And what they do here is an append-only copy-on-write. And if you've done any kind of like big data stuff, you're familiar with these type of terms. But basically what happens here is CouchDB does not overwrite anything in an existing page in their B tree. So they have a B tree index, right? Instead, it creates a copy of the modified page. Then a copy of each parent is made all the way up the tree to the root. And then um, when you get up there, there's a pointer going to that new um, parent node that you gave. So any pages not impacted by the right operation don't need to be touched. So, that's so cool to me. Like you have something down here at the leaf node, you make a copy of each tree and then you just point to the new tree. That is super fast in right? most cases, like incredibly fast. And you have your chance of losing any data at that point is so small. It's not impossible, right? Like we've talked about hardware failures and all kinds of stuff, but because you just duplicated that entire node tree and moved it over and repointed to it. Your old stuff's there, and it happened super fast. To me, that was that was to me the mind blowing thing. Like, man, that is so beautiful and so elegant. And what it allows you to do is have tons of people working on things at the same time and having new copies of those things created all over the place if they need to be. You know, the crazy part about this, I mean, that's kind of, you know, along the lines of what I was describing a moment ago there, right? With the the pointers. But it also made me think, too, that, like, have an appreciation for the author, M- Martin Klutman, all the database technologies that he, you know, has, like, pretty in-depth oh, knowledge of. So yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and do him a favor. Uh, if you're looking for a database guy uh, and Martin Klutman's available, that's probably the guy you want to hire, you know, just... Saying because this guy apparently knows you know a thing or two about one or all techno- database technology, so you know just saying like he might be the Wikipedia of databases, database He's knowledge. Got a cool blog, by the way, nice blog. Oh really? Yeah. We haven't talked about that yet. Yeah, he doesn't write very often, but he's got a couple of cool articles. Uh, it's like in depth, good stuff. That's that's just going to make its way into the uh, resources. We resources, like. no doubt. Hey, so, so finishing up that last point with that, creating the new thing, the killer part of this is because you're going all the way up to the root. Anytime you go look at a new root node, you're always looking at a consistent snapshot of the database at that point in time. Like if you move over to another root node, that is a consistent snapshot of that database at that point in time. And that's, I mean, it's such an elegant solution and you don't have to filter anything. So that was one of the key things here. There's no filtering. You just point to the main root node and then you have access to all the, the leafs from there on down. Um, so yeah, 
And you do need a background process to clean things up, which we kind of mentioned. Um, so that's kind of a it's a little funny thing I never thought about, like SQL Server, for example, having a garbage collection uh, process. In uh, Postgres, it's called the vacuum. Oh, really? <laughs> the vacuum process. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's funny. All right. So, uh, repeatable read and name confusion, uh, name confusion. So, uh, you know, we mentioned, um, snapshot, snapshot isolation. And we mentioned also before in past episodes how a lot of the things and kind of principles behind modern databases were like figured out basically a long time ago, like in the 70s. And, uh, it's, a lot of those have been baked into standards like, over the years, like, uh, you know, SQL, for example. But fuzzy uh, standards. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, we mentioned how, yeah, it's, there's some room for interpretation there. Snapshot isolation in particular is a newer idea. It's, uh, I don't think he said when it, uh, when it came around, but it, it wasn't kind of part of this initial set of research that came out a long, long time ago. And because of that, um, various vendors had started kind of, uh, implementing kind of versions of it and kind of ideas had kind of evolved a little bit more organically rather than having a big kind of up the, uh, idea up front. And so, um, different database, Systems kind of have uh, different flavors doing this and they have different names sometimes for similar type functionality. And uh, one of those names is called repeatable read, uh, which when you think about it, it makes sense, right? You, I guess <laughs> if you can read again with the same transaction ID, then you would get the same results, right? Even if you happen to do it at a later time, assuming that the, the data was still available. Uh, Oracle calls it serializable. Of course they would. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess, I, you know, if you're using it, it for backups... Fancy. Then, you know, I guess it's serializable. We implemented uh, the inter- interface. It's serializable. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one of those terms overloaded. Um, Postgres and um, MySQL call it repeatable read. So, interesting. So, snapshot isolation, um, I think I've seen that in SQL Server, definitely in Kafka, uh, definitely in Mongo. By the way, um, you ever wonder where the name Mongo came from? I have. Yep. Wonder. Did you look it up? No. I just no. looked it up. Uh, it's from the word humongous. They just kind of shortened it a little bit. Oh. Okay, but then it's sense. not. But then it's not so huge. Yeah, <laughs> the oxymoron there, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> we want something big, but not that big. Let's make it small. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, these uh, so these terms. Uh, so Postgres and MySQL I mentioned called it repeatable read. They had uh, kind of you know this functionality is very similar to snapshot isolation, but it's not quite exact. But you know we've seen that happen uh, a bunch of times. But just know that it's kind of. You know, different names for these things, but uh, the, you know, like pretty much any database that you can back up, I think would have to implement some sort of version of this. Yeah, the the biggest problem that they said here is the the databases that implement repeatable read kind of do it in their own ways, and they don't provide guarantees, right? Like when we started this entire section. That's really what everything boiled down to is what are my guarantees for certain isolation levels? And because it's not consistent from database to database, that's where they're like, well, we can't use repeatable read here. And that's why snapshot isolation is the term that's being used. Yeah, it goes back to the exact same problem of ACID compliant. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, my database is ACID compliant. Okay, great. I have no idea what you're telling me. And that's what they said here. Nobody really knows exactly what repeatable read means. Yeah, because yeah. there's there's no formal definition of it. So, oh, I did want to call out too. Uh, this was another example of the footnotes. So I know that Alan really likes the digital version of the book. Joe really likes the audible version of the book. And I like the physical version of the book because 
that that bit about the Postgres ID rolling over, that was a footnote in the book. Oh, yeah, I never saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you, you, you do get some, uh, additional details from, uh, the footnotes. So read the footnotes. That's really the takeaway <laughs> from this episode. Is that your tip of the week? Um, you know, it wasn't going to be, but now you're going to call me out on it. Sure. <laughs> tip of the week. Yeah. You know, I, I got a free tip for you. This was, I wasn't planning on sharing this one. But so are we, are we into the tip of the weeks then? Yeah. Oh, well, before we do that, then let's just say we'll have we'll have links in the resources we like section. And now we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show that Joe's trying to rush me into. But I'm going to say it right now. And I had to interrupt him. It's the tip of the week. Yeah. All right. Now I've got an anti tip coming up first. This is just a bonus. This is just a lifetime. <laughs> anti tip. Is it an anti tip? Okay. Actually, a bonus? <laughs> like, yeah. This is okay. good. This is a, I mean, this isn't, this, I don't know. Maybe it's not niche. I don't know. We'll see. Have you ever heard of the book Infinite Jest? No. Mm-mm. Okay. Well, Infinite Jest is kind of like a modern classic. It was written in 1996 by this guy, um, David Forster Wallace. Uh, he's now passed on. Uh, the book is um, kind of infamous. It's 1,451 pages. It's really big. And it is tons of footnotes. And the footnotes refer to, you know, kind of like in-world kind of like tangents and just crazy things. If I describe this book to you, it would sound terrible. And somehow it's like, you know, really super popular and people love it. And, you know, despite all the kind of the weird things, I, I won't get into it now, but there's just a lot of things that sound very weird to you if I describe the way that this book talks about time and people and the way it kind of hops back and forth between the footnotes. Like you would think it just sounds miserable to read. And yet it's wonderful. Um, so you've but read it. You've read it. I started. But it's too big. <laughs> it's too big. So I got it on Audible. And you can't do it like that. You need the footnotes. It has to be this book in particular, I think has to be read not digitally, not audiobook. You have to get the book because you are going to spend a lot of time flipping almost like a, you know, it's like a, like a choose, like your, a own choose adventure. your own adventure. Yeah. That's exactly. what I was thinking of as you were describing it. Yeah. And it's a, it's a weird book because there's times when you just don't want to do the footnote and you can skip it and you can just keep going. And there's times when you want to go by and go back. It's a weird book that you don't read in order. Like, who would do that, right? David Forrest, Forrester Wallace would do it. Uh, I think have we ever talked about the Wise Water Wet book, uh, or not book, um, talk. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, anyway, he's got a famous uh, like speech he did. Uh, something. Um, I'll get a link there. Um, water wet speech. Anyway, it's um. Uh, hold on, I'll find it. Dang it. Okay. Anyway, it, that doesn't matter. Oh, but we'll have. Uh, there's a really cool talk they did about. It starts off with a joke about two fish and uh, running into an older fish and kind of talking about um, water being wet, which sounds crazy, but it's good. Just, just trust me, y'all. Just watch this video. <laughs> so stop transgressing because this isn't even my tip. Um, but we'll have some show notes in there you should check out. Um, I'll put it in here. Uh, Foster Walls. Okay. Anyway, so my actual tip then. Uh, aside from don't try to do this on don't try to do that book on audible is uh there's a youtube channel called tamara makes games uh hosted by someone named tamara uh ukrainian game dev uh on youtube that puts a bunch of videos out around game dev in particular uh she tends to focus on uh isometric games or has a lot of videos about isometric games where you have kind of like a cool like 45 degree angle on stuff uh which is like common diablo games. Kind of like view. Diablo or uh, like uh, 
a lot of strategy games like Warcraft 2, stuff like that. Um, a lot of like Civilization, I think, would probably be considered uh, isometric. Uh, a lot of city builder games, SimCity, stuff like that. Uh, and it talks a lot about videos like that and Factorio and kind of crafting systems. And it's a different kind of game dev video than you would normally find and kind of on, on stuff where you normally, if you look, look at like game dev YouTube, it's a lot of like how to make characters jump and animations and like how to kind of do basic tools. And this is like just in a different, different ballpark altogether. And it's really good. I can't believe I, I didn't think of League of Legends when I was trying to think of that view. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> how do we leave yeah. that one out? Yeah, and it's kind of funny because when you think about it, it's um, it's a really comfortable way to play a game and it feels natural. But the way that you have to interact with the world in 3D spaces like a developer, like it's kind of tricky because like your mouse, for example, is basically 2D. You know, it's in like like screen position X and Y. And you've got to map this to this like kind of weird angle. And so there's just a, a lot of interesting things. And even like the way you do your art and stuff in order to make it so you can kind of like be looking down on things but also still be able to see them like for example faces like if you're looking down from me uh, from above you're not going to see my face but face is even going to be maybe in shadow you know there's just a lot of things to kind of consider but uh, aside from the actual just visual stuff she's got a really nice mix of like c sharp code uh she does go very fast so i pause a lot <laughs> to like make sure i'm kind of grokking and doing things right but anyway it's just a great youtube channel so we'll have a, a link to that very cool uh okay so for my tips of the week, that's right, plural, like a boss. Uh, we've talked about iTerm2 in multiple episodes. Um, I'll include links to that in the show notes uh, for the episodes that we've previously referred to it. But you know, no, um, you know, no surprise that we love iTerm2 and continue with that love affair. Did you know that iTerm2 has its own status bar? where you can show system resources. So uh, I'll give a link to the documentation for it, but underneath preferences, you go to preferences profile session and you can turn the status bar on there and you can configure it as well. And it'll have like CPU utilization or memory utilization or network throughput or uh, what's the git state or the job name or username, uh, you know, the clock. There's miscellaneous things that you can do in there. They, they talk about all the different um, things that you could do in that, as well as, uh, you know, calling, uh, uh, you know, there's API, uh, Python API hooks that you can use with it. So um, it's pretty cool. Like if you spend your day, like in a full screen terminal, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about you guys. I spend, a pretty good chunk of time in a full screen terminal. So <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a nice little handy thing to be able to see there. Um, you know, like, you know, well, well, is my machine pegged out right now? Oh no, there's the, the CPU isn't fully pegged or, but my network is, Oh, that's why things aren't working so well. So, uh, I'll have a link to that. Also, uh, this one I thought was super cool. So this is a beta tool from Google called container diff. And I'll have a link to it, uh, to the GitHub project for it. And the GitHub project has all the instructions on how to use it and, and install it. But what this thing can help you do where I want, where I found it, how I found it or why I found it was I was trying to debug some cache related issues. Like why, why does this Docker image, why is it not using the layer cache that I think that it should be and what is actually different between these layers. Right. And so that's why I started hunting around trying to find like, how can I figure out like what's 
actually different because they have different hashes. So and, and Docker rebuilt it. So it's obviously something's different about it. What is it that's different to help me debug this problem? And there's a bunch of different commands that you can do on it. Um, but you know, showing like the uh, particular image sizes or the packages like uh, APT or RPM packages, whatever um, I'll include the direct uh, link to it. But you know, maybe you will find it helpful too. That sounds really awesome. Right? Yeah. I mean, especially if you're dealing with the exact problem you're talking about, right? Like why, why is it not using my layer? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's killer. All right. So oh, hey, real quick, just want to say correction. I got the title totally wrong and even the joke wrong. It, the name of the speech is this is water. But if you, it, apparently everyone gets it wrong. So if you like Google David Forrester Wazzle, Wallace and water, you'll see like a bunch of people referring to the speech and all sorts of weird names, just like me, because I can never remember the name, but the name is this is water. Okay. Excellent. That I think outlaws adding that to our notes here. Um, all right. So I had a super awesome tip. Um, earlier in the week and I didn't write it down or email myself or do whatever I needed to do to remember it. So the super awesome tip is gone. So instead so, you get a meh tip yeah. of the week. Well, no, no, I won't say meh because this one comes <laughs> from Jamie, um, you know, over in our Slack channel and he's usually pretty good. And usually, sure enough, come usually, on usually, Alan. I mean, you know, not everybody can be great all the time. Right. Um, and by so, the way of .NET, um, Core podcast and uh, which is that the name anyway? And uh, also tabs and um, spaces, tabs and spaces. Yeah. So yeah, um, Jamie's awesome. He he's he's always sharing and, and leaving excellent stuff. So he actually has a link here to a GitHub. Um, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it, but the the thing is Zial at the end. I'm not trying to pronounce the thing before it, but what this thing does is it will actually scan your container images for um, end-of-life packages. So if you have something, and, and if you're not familiar with end-of-life or end-of-support, basically if it's not being developed or supported anymore, there's probably potentially security flaws and things that can creep in. So at any rate, this particular tool will go out and scan your containers to find packages that are being used that are end-of-life. So really cool tool there. And then I actually came up with another one while we were sitting here going through the tips that I think is helpful. So outlaw shared a tip that is actually pretty cool and I've used it quite a bit. You know, he had a, he had a good one this time too. Um, you know, he and Jamie both on a roll. Um, wow. The Docker builder prune thing that he mentioned previously, right. Mm -hmm. Which is like a super easy way to get rid of any hanging, um, containers that aren't, or not containers, images that aren't being used and clean up space on your disk, right? So a lot of people may not realize this. Minikube's your VM. And images that get built, like we use Scaffold a lot. We've talked about it. If you're building images, they get added to a container registry. Typically, if you're doing Docker Desktop or Minikube or something like that, it's getting added to a local container registry, right? You don't think about it. You don't even realize what's going on because if you had set it up remotely, you'd have to do it differently. Well, a lot of times you'll have things show up in Minikube and you're like, well, I want to get rid of that. And, and sometimes it's not super easy to do. A lot of times if you just Minikube SSH to get into your Minikube VM, there's a Docker daemon running in the background and you can do a Docker images command in there and it'll list it. Well, 
because that is the container registry that's being used for Minikube, you can do that Docker builder prune inside your Minikube VM and it'll get rid of some stuff that's just hanging around, taking up space, not being used. So um, I use that quite a bit whenever, you know, I'm doing heavy things in Minikube and this space is at a premium. I'll go in and clean that stuff up. So just know that I guess the tip here is a lot of times Minikube is running Docker inside it. You can go in there and run all the Docker commands that you were used to running on your desktop. Wait a minute. You don't already just use Minikube's Docker daemon? No, I, I typically don't. I mean, we've talked about that before. Um, it depends. So <laughs> we've actually talked about this in the past. If you are trying to run a Docker image as a container and you need to attach a volume to it, it can be tricky if you're trying to do it through um, a mini cube type thing. So the Docker daemon that runs in mini cube won't attach the volume the way that you expect it to. Like you remember we did a Docker run back in the past, you do a dash V and you pass in something, you go in there and it's empty and you're like, well, I know it's not empty because I can see the stuff on my drive. It doesn't attach it. So sometimes I'll run both of them side by side so that I can actually do a Docker run and also do my Kubernetes stuff. So, so at any rate, Okay, because what I was going to say is the so okay. First, if in your situation, as I understand, you're saying you would typically run like a Docker desktop to to be your Docker daemon and maintain right. your your build cache or your let me say your 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 registry of images, right? But then you would have a Minikube VM VM that has its own Docker daemon and you're pushing images into it to run for like, you know, it's Kubernetes instance, right? Scaffold would do that for me, right? Like it would move those images in there. So what I do, and I'll put the command in the, in the show notes here, but um, this is why I was so shocked because Minikube has a command called a uh, Docker EMV. I use that so that my native or my host operating system is linked into the Minikube VM to use its Docker daemon so that both my host operating system and the Minikube VM are using the same Docker uh, daemon. And the Minikube VM contains all of the storage for all for everything Docker, be it Docker builder cache or the images or whatever. And so you can, I'll, I'll give an, I'll give an example in the show notes, but there's an eval command that you could do. It's like the syntax would be something like eval space dollar sign. And then in parentheses, minikube Docker dash ENV. And in my case, I typically use a profile. And uh, so you know, like in your case, you're using Docker desktop. So you could say like, uh, if your mini cube profile was called Docker dash desktop, which is pretty common, uh, pretty common cube context. Then you could say, uh, mini cube Docker dash ENV minus P Docker dash desktop. And it'll, it'll configure your Docker commands to use the Damon from the Minikube VM inside Minikube. Yeah. And that works. And you could probably even make it work with Docker run. If you did a, um, an SCP of your files into your Minikube 
image into the right directory. But if you're trying to do a Docker run and attach a local volume, that's where it falls apart when you try and link up to, to the mini cube Docker. And yeah. that's, and that's where, you know, it's, it's use cases that, that run into that. If you're not trying to do a Docker run and mount volumes, then you don't have that problem. And what outlaw saying it makes things a lot easier. Well, here's like a, just a little Docker tip, you know, bonus. Um, unlike this is not going to be like Jay Z's bonus tip, by the way. <laughs> not trying to anti- throw shade. Anti-tip. This is the anti bonus. I'm, I'm not trying to throw shade on his tip. Anti anti tip. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so when you're trying to Docker, uh, when you're trying to mount a volume into your, um, your container, the important thing to note there is that the the Docker daemon's going to mount a thing that exists wherever the daemon exists in its host, right? So if the if if you have like me, if you if you have configured your host OS to use the Minikube Docker daemon, then any volumes that you're going to mount better exist in that Minikube VM, right? right? Otherwise, it's not going to pass through, and that. Even though I'm telling you this and I know this, it still bites me so many times, especially when you get into like situations where you have like Docker and Docker inside of Docker inside of Docker, you know, turtles all the way down. Cause especially like in, you know, cloud environments, you know, where you might be like, Oh, let me just spin off a Docker container to go and do something. And you know, you might be multiple Docker levels deep and you're like, wait, why isn't my mount working? And it's like, Oh yeah. Cause it's like way up the chain. Yeah. So, so what he was saying is exactly why I said you could probably SCP. So if you have files on, on your machine that, that you want to be able to mount, but your Docker daemons running actually inside Minikube, you could SCP those files from your system into the Minikube instance into a directory. And then when you mount it, they'd be there. What would be even better is when you start up Minikube, if you could auto mount some directories, which you might be able to do, I've never even looked into. That's what it. I was totally thinking. Like, if you were to mount those things as a, like an NFS mount, you know, right. even though it's coming back to localhost, you know, but you did it over the network, then you'd probably be better. The problem with that, though, is uh, in doing it that particular way, is I'm not crazy about the idea of technically exposing that file your, share. Your host system. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe there's something you could do firewall related to like lock it down to where you know, you're sharing it, but it's only available on like local host IP address or something. But um, yeah, I yeah. mean, you, you could totally do it that way. And if I, and if I was in a situation to where I needed to continue to doc, to, to use mini cubes VM um, maybe because I'm just, you know, uh, stubborn like that. I, I would, do the mounting of Minikube. I wouldn't bother like, Oh, okay. Now I've made a change. Let me recopy the file in. That would right. be super annoying. Right. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that was a short discussion. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll have, uh, you know, some notes, some links, some letters and words. Things will be on pages and, um, you know, on your phone, by the way, We've talked about this before, but if you're new to the show and you don't know, now you will. The show notes that we provide are available. Usually in most podcast players, you can see the full show notes and follow along there. So if we mention like, hey, there's going to be this link uh, to Martin Kleppman's blog, for example, or uh, this is water or whatever we're calling it now. I don't know. Why is water wet? Uh, Whatever that, that silly story is. 
uh, and we mentioned there's a link in there. You can usually find it in your podcast player. So you don't really have to go far out of your way uh, to even get to that. So, uh, yeah, subscribe to us on any of the major platforms. If there's a particular platform that you like to find your podcast and we aren't there, we would like to know that. So you can uh, hit us up on one of the many different ways, including, as Alan said, if you haven't left us a review, you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Hey, and while you go up to the Coding Blocks website, obviously check out our show notes, our examples, discussions, and more. And if you're not a part of our Slack group, you should be. Go to codingblocks.net slash Slack, and you can join up there. And we have a website, codingblocks.net, and we got social delays at the top of the page there, including one for Twitter at codingblocks, and links to Slack, other things too. You should go hit it up. Wait, I thought they're social links now? I thought they were sausage links. They were yeah. sausage links. Yes. No, I cleared the mustard. Oh, so <laughs> I see yeah. what happened. Yes. Hurry, hurry, hurry.